Section nine of the works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume four, Lectures, Dresden edition, published nineteen hundred. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Libby Gone. The works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume four, The Foundations of Faith, Part two the trinity the new testament informs us that christ was the son of joseph and the son of god and that mary was his mother how is it established that christ was the son of god it is said that joseph was told so in a dream by an angel but joseph wrote nothing on that subject said nothing so far as we know mary wrote nothing said nothing the angel that appeared to Joseph, or that informed Joseph, said nothing to anybody else. Neither has the Holy Ghost, the supposed Father, ever said or written one word. We have received no information from the parties who could have known anything on the subject. We get all our facts from those who could not have known. How is it possible to prove that the Holy Ghost was the Father of Christ? Who knows that such a being as the Holy Ghost ever existed? How was it possible for Mary to know anything about the Holy Ghost? How could Joseph know that he had been visited by an angel in a dream? Could he know that the visitor was an angel? It all occurred in a dream, and poor Joseph was asleep. What is the testimony of one who was asleep worth? All the evidence we have is that somebody who wrote part of the New Testament says that the Holy Ghost was the Father of Christ and that somebody who wrote another part of the new testament says that joseph was the father of christ matthew and luke give the genealogy and both show that christ was the son of joseph the incarnation has to be believed without evidence there is no way in which it can be established it is beyond the reach and realm of reason it defies observation and is independent of experience it is claimed not only that Christ was the Son of God, but that he was and is God. Was he God before he was born? Was the body of Mary the dwelling place of God? What evidence have we that Christ was God? Somebody has said that Christ claimed that God was his Father, and that he and his Father were one. We do not know who this somebody was, and do not know from whom he received his information somebody who was inspired has said that christ was of the blood of david through his father joseph this is all the evidence we have can we believe that god the creator of the universe learned the trade of a carpenter in palestine that he gathered a few disciples about him and after teaching for about three years suffered himself to be crucified by a few ignorant and pious jews Christ, according to the faith, is the second person in the Trinity, the Father being the first, and the Holy Ghost being the third. Each of these three persons is God. Christ is his own Father and his own Son. The Holy Ghost is neither Father nor Son, but both. The Son was begotten by the Father, but existed before he was begotten, just the same before as after. Christ is just as old as his Father, and the father is just as young as his son the holy ghost proceeded from the father and son but was equal to the father and son before he proceeded that is to say before he existed
but he is of the same age as the other two. So it is declared that the Father is God, and the Son God, and the Holy Ghost God, and that these three gods make one God. According to the celestial multiplication table, once one is three, and three times one is one, and according to heavenly subtraction, if we take two from three, three are left. The addition is equally peculiar. If we add two to one, we have but one. Each one is equal to himself and the other two. Nothing ever was, nothing ever can be more perfectly idiotic and absurd than the dogma of the Trinity. How is it possible to prove the existence of the Trinity? Is it possible for a human being, who has been born but once, to comprehend or to imagine the existence of three beings, each of whom is equal to the three? Think of one of these beings as the father of one, and think of that one as half-human and all-God, and think of the third as having proceeded from the other two, and then think of all three as one. Think that after the father begot the son, the father was still alone, and after the Holy Ghost proceeded from the Father and the Son, the Father was still alone, because there never was and never will be but one God. At this point, absurdity having reached its limit, nothing more can be said except, let us pray. The Theological Christ In the New Testament we find the teachings and sayings of Christ. If we say that the book is inspired, then we must admit that Christ really said all the things attributed to him by the various writers. If the book is inspired, we must accept it all. We have no right to reject the contradictory and absurd and accept the reasonable and good. We must take it all just as it is. My own observation has led me to believe that men are generally consistent in their theories and inconsistent in their lives. So I think that Christ in his utterances was true to his theory, to his philosophy. If I find in the Testament sayings of a contradictory character, I conclude that some of those sayings were never uttered by him. The sayings that are, in my judgment, in accordance with what I believe to have been his philosophy, I accept, and the others I throw away. There are some of his sayings which show him to have been a devout Jew, others that he wished to destroy Judaism, others showing that he held all people except the Jews in contempt, and that he wished to save no others, others showing that he wished to convert the world, still others showing that he was forgiving, self-denying, and loving, others that he was revengeful and malicious, others that he was an ascetic, holding all human ties in utter contempt. The following passages show that Christ was a devout Jew. Swear not, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is his holy city. Quote, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill. For after all these things, clothing, food, and drink, do the Gentiles seek. So when he cured the leper, he said, Go thy way. Show thyself unto the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded. Jesus sent his disciples forth, saying, Go not into the ways of the Gentile, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. 
but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. A woman came out of Canaan and cried to Jesus, Have mercy on me, my daughter is sorely vexed with a devil, but he would not answer. Then the disciples asked him to send her away, and he said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then the woman worshipped him and said, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it unto dogs. Yet for her faith he cured her child. So when the young man asked him what he must do to be saved, he said, Keep the commandments. Christ said, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. Christ went into the temple and cast out them that sold and bought there, and said, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Certainly all these passages were written by persons who regarded Christ as the Messiah. Many of the sayings attributed to Christ show that he was an ascetic, that he cared nothing for kindred, nothing for father and mother, nothing for brothers and sisters, and nothing for the pleasures of life. Christ said to a man, Follow me. That man said, Suffer me first to go and bury my father. Christ answered, Let the dead bury their dead. Another said, I will follow thee, but first let me go and bid them farewell which are at home. Jesus said, No man having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. If thine right eye offend thee, pluck it out. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. One said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. And he answered, Who is my mother, and who are my brethren? Then he stretched forth his hand towards his disciples, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father and mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Christ, it seems, had a philosophy. He believed that God was a loving father, and that he would take care of his children, that they need not do anything except to rely implicitly on God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Ask, and it shall be given you. Whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. If ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. The very hairs on your head are all numbered. Christ seemed to rely absolutely on the protection of God until the darkness of death gathered about him, and then he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
while there are many passages in the new testament showing christ to have been forgiving and tender there are many others showing that he was exactly the opposite what must have been the spirit of one who said i am come to send fire on the earth suppose ye that i have come to give peace on earth i tell you nay but rather division for from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided three against two and two against three the father shall be divided against the son and the son against the father the mother against the daughter and the daughter against the mother the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters yea and his own life also he cannot be my disciple but those mine enemies which would not that i should reign over them bring hither and slay them before me this passage built dungeons and lighted faggots depart ye cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels i come not to bring peace but a sword all these sayings could not have been uttered by the same person they are inconsistent with each other love does not speak the words of hatred the real philanthropist does not despise all nations but his own the teacher of universal forgiveness cannot believe in eternal torture from the interpolations legends accretions mistakes and falsehoods in the new testament is it possible to free the actual man clad in mist and myth hidden by the draperies of gods deformed indistinct as faces in the clouds is it possible to find and recognize the features the natural face of the actual christ for many centuries our fathers closed their eyes to the contradictions and inconsistencies of the testament and in spite of their reason harmonized the interpolations and mistakes this is no longer possible the contradictions are too many too glaring there are contradictions of fact not only but of philosophy of theory the accounts of the trial the crucifixion and ascension of christ do not agree they are full of mistakes and contradictions according to one account christ ascended the day of or the day after his resurrection according to another he remained forty days after rising from the dead according to one account he was seen after his resurrection by only a few women and his disciples according to another he was seen by the women by his disciples on several occasions and by hundreds of others according to matthew luke and mark christ remained for the most part in the country seldom going to jerusalem according to john he remained mostly in jerusalem going occasionally into the country and then generally to avoid his enemies according to matthew mark and luke christ taught that if you would forgive others god would forgive you according to john christ said that the only way to get into heaven was to believe on him and be born again these contradictions are gross and palpable and demonstrate that the new testament is not inspired and that many of its statements must be false if we wish to save the character of christ many of the passages must be thrown away we must discard the miracles or admit that he was insane or an impostor we must discard the passages that breathe the spirit of hatred and revenge or admit that he was malevolent 
if matthew was mistaken about the genealogy of christ about the wise men the star the flight into egypt and the massacre of the babes by herod then he may have been mistaken in many passages that he put in the mouth of christ the same may be said in regard to mark luke and john the church must admit that the writers of the new testament were uninspired men that they made many mistakes that they accepted impossible legends as historical facts that they were ignorant and superstitious that they put malevolent stupid insane and unworthy words in the mouth of christ described him as the worker of impossible miracles and in many ways stained and belittled his character the best that can be said about christ is that nearly nineteen centuries ago he was born in the land of palestine in a country without wealth without commerce in the midst of a people who knew nothing of the greater world a people enslaved crushed by the mighty power of rome that this babe this child of poverty and want grew to manhood without education knowing nothing of art or science and at about the age of thirty began wandering about the hills and hamlets of his native land discussing with priests talking with the poor and sorrowful writing nothing but leaving his words in the memory or forgetfulness of those to whom he spoke that he attacked the religion of his time because it was cruel that this excited the hatred of those in power and that christ was arrested tried and crucified for many centuries this great peasant of palestine has been worshipped as god millions and millions have given their lives to his service the wealth of the world was lavished on his shrines his name carried consolation to the diseased and dying his name dispelled the darkness of death and filled the dungeon with light his name gave courage to the martyr and in the midst of fire with shriveling lips the sufferer uttered it again and again the outcasts the deserted the fallen felt that christ was their friend felt that he knew their sorrows and pitied their sufferings the poor mother holding her dead babe in her arms lovingly whispered his name his gospel has been carried by millions to all parts of the globe and his story has been told by the self-denying and faithful to countless thousands of the sons of men in his name have been preached charity forgiveness and love he it was who according to the faith brought immortality to light and many millions have entered the valley of the shadow with their hands and his all this is true and if it were all how beautiful how touching how glorious it would be but it is not all there is another side in his name millions and millions of men and women have been imprisoned tortured and killed in his name millions and millions have been enslaved in his name the thinkers the investigators have been branded as criminals and his followers have shed the blood of the wisest and best in his name the progress of many nations was stayed for a thousand years in his gospel was found the dogma of eternal pain and his words added an infinite horror to death his gospel filled the world with hatred and revenge made intellectual honesty a crime made happiness here the road to hell denounced love as base and bestial canonized credulity crowned bigotry and destroyed the liberty of man 
it would have been far better had the new testament never been written far better that the theological christ had never lived had the writers of the testament been regarded as uninspired had christ been thought of only as a man had the good been accepted and the absurd the impossible and the revengeful thrown away mankind would have escaped the wars the tortures the scaffolds the dungeons the agony and tears the crimes and sorrows of a thousand years we have also the scheme of redemption according to this scheme by the sin of adam and eve in the garden of eden human nature became evil corrupt and depraved it became impossible for human beings to keep in all things the law of god in spite of this god allowed the people to live and multiply for some fifteen hundred years and then on account of their wickedness drowned them all with the exception of eight persons the nature of these eight persons was evil corrupt and depraved and in the nature of things their children would be cursed with the same nature yet god gave them another trial knowing exactly what the result would be a few of these wretches he selected and made them objects of his love and care the rest of the world he gave to indifference and neglect to civilize the people he had chosen he assisted them in conquering and killing their neighbors and gave them the assistance of priests and inspired prophets for their preservation and punishment he wrought countless miracles gave them many laws and a great deal of advice he taught them to sacrifice oxen sheep and doves to the end that their sins might be forgiven the idea was inculcated that there was a certain relation between the sin and the sacrifice the greater the sin the greater the sacrifice he also taught the savagery that without the shedding of blood there was no remission of sin in spite of all his efforts the people grew gradually worse they would not they could not keep his laws a sacrifice had to be made for the sins of the people the sins were too great to be washed out by the blood of animals or men it became necessary for god himself to be sacrificed all mankind were under the curse of the law either all the world must be lost or god must die in only one way could the guilty be justified and that was by the death the sacrifice of the innocent and the innocent being sacrificed must be great enough to atone for the world there was but one such being god thereupon god took upon himself flesh was born into the world was known as christ was murdered sacrificed by the jews and became an atonement for the sins of the human race this is the scheme of redemption the atonement it is impossible to conceive of anything more utterly absurd a man steals and then sacrifices a dove or gives a lamb to a priest his crime remains the same he need not kill something let him give back the things stolen and in future live an honest life a man slanders his neighbor and then kills an ox what has that to do with the slander let him take back his slander make all the reparation he can and let the ox alone there is no sense in sacrifice there never was and never will be make restitution reparation undo the wrong and you need shed no blood a good law 
one springing from the nature of things cannot demand and cannot accept and cannot be satisfied with the punishment or the agony of the innocent a god could not accept his own sufferings in justification of the guilty this is a complete subversion of all ideas of justice and morality a god could not make a law for man then suffer in the place of the man who had violated it and say that the law had been carried out and the penalty duly enforced a man has committed murder has been tried convicted and condemned to death another man goes to the governor and says he is willing to die in place of the murderer the governor says all right i accept your offer a murder has been committed somebody must be hung and your death will satisfy the law but that is not the law the law says not that somebody shall be hanged but that the murderer shall suffer death even if the governor should die in place of the criminal it would be no better there would be two murderers instead of one two innocent men killed one by the first murderer and one by the state and the real murderer free this christians call satisfying the law we are told that all who believe in the scheme of redemption and have faith in the redeemer will be rewarded with eternal joy some think that men can be saved by faith without works some think that faith and works are both essential but all agree that without faith there is no salvation if you repent and believe on jesus christ then his goodness will be imputed to you and the penalty of the law so far as you are concerned will be satisfied by the sufferings of christ you may repent and reform you may make restitution you may practice all the virtues but without this belief in christ the gates of heaven will be shut against you forever where is this heaven the christians do not know does the christian go there at death or must he wait for the general resurrection they do not know the testament teaches that the bodies of the dead are to be raised where are their souls in the meantime they do not know can the dead be raised the atoms composing their bodies enter into new combinations into new forms into wheat and corn into the flesh of animals and into the bodies of other men where one man dies and some of his atoms pass into the body of another man and he dies to whom will these atoms belong on the day of resurrection if christianity were only stupid and unscientific if its god was ignorant and kind if it promised eternal joy to believers and if the believers practiced the forgiveness they teach for one i should let the faith alone but there is another side to christianity it is not only stupid but malicious it is not only unscientific but it is heartless its god is not only ignorant but infinitely cruel it not only promises the faithful and eternal reward but declares that nearly all of the children of men imprisoned in the dungeons of god will suffer eternal pain this is the savagery of christianity this is why i hate its unthinkable god its impossible christ its inspired lies and its selfish heartless heaven christians believe in infinite torture in eternal pain eternal pain all the meanness of which the heart of man is capable is in that one word hell that word is a den a cave in which crawl the slimy reptiles of revenge 
That word certifies to the savagery of primitive man. That word is the depth, the dungeon, the abyss from which civilized man has emerged. That word is the disgrace, the shame, the infamy of our revealed religion. That word fills all the future with the shrieks of the damned. That word brutalizes the New Testament, changes the Sermon on the Mount to hypocrisy and cant, and pollutes and hardens the very heart of Christ. That word adds infinite horror to death, and makes the cradle as terrible as the coffin. That word is the assassin of joy, the mocking murderer of hope. That word extinguishes the light of life and wraps the world in gloom. That word drives reason from its throne and gives the crown to madness. That word drove pity from the hearts of men, stained countless swords with blood, lighted faggots, forged chains, built dungeons, erected scaffolds, and filled the world with poverty and pain. That word is a coiled serpent in the mother's breast that lifts its fanged head and hisses in her ear, your child will be the fuel of eternal fire. That word blots from the firmament the star of hope and leaves the heavens black. That word makes the Christian's God an eternal torturer, an everlasting inquisitor, an infinite wild beast. This is the Christian prophecy of the eternal future. No hope in hell, no pity in heaven, no mercy in the heart of God. The Old Testament is absurd, ignorant, and cruel. The New Testament is a mingling of the false and the true. It is good and bad. The Jehovah of the Jews is an impossible monster. The Trinity, absurd and idiotic. Christ is a myth or a man. The fall of man is contradicted by every fact concerning human history that we know. The scheme of redemption through the atonement is immoral and senseless. Hell was imagined by revenge, and the orthodox heaven is the selfish dream of heartless serfs and slaves. The foundations of the faith have crumbled and faded away. They were miracles, mistakes, and myths, ignorant and untrue, Absurd, impossible, immoral, unnatural, cruel, childish, savage. Beneath the gaze of the scientist they vanished, confronted by facts they disappeared. The orthodox religion of our day has no foundation in truth. Beneath the superstructure can be found no fact. Some may ask, are you trying to take our religion away? I answer, no. Superstition is not religion. Belief without evidence is not religion. Faith without facts is not religion. To love justice, to long for the right, to love mercy, to pity the suffering, to assist the weak, to forget wrongs and remember benefits, to love the truth, to be sincere, to utter honest words, to love liberty, to wage relentless war against slavery in all its forms, to love wife and child and friend, to make a happy home, to love the beautiful in art, in nature, to cultivate the mind, to be familiar with the mighty thoughts that genius has expressed, the noble deeds of all the world, to cultivate courage and cheerfulness, to make others happy, to fill life with the splendor of generous acts, the warmth of loving words, 
to discard error, to destroy prejudice, to receive new truths with gladness, to cultivate hope, to see the calm beyond the storm, the dawn beyond the night, to do the best that can be done and then to be resigned, this is the religion of reason, the creed of science. This satisfies the brain and heart. But, says the prejudiced priest, the malicious minister, you take away a future life. I am not trying to destroy another world, but I am endeavoring to prevent the theologians from destroying this. If we are immortal, it is a fact of nature, and that fact does not depend on Bibles or Christs or priests or creeds. The hope of another life was in the heart long before the sacred books were written, and will remain there long after all the sacred books are known to be the work of savage and superstitious men. Hope is the consolation of the world. The wanderers hope for home. Hope builds the house and plants the flowers and fills the air with song. The sick and suffering hope for health. Hope gives them health and paints the roses in their cheeks. The lonely, the forsaken, hope for love. Hope brings the lover to their arms. They feel the kisses on their eager lips. The poor, in tenements and huts, in spite of rags and hunger, hope for wealth. Hope fills their thin and trembling hands with gold. The dying hopes that death is but another birth. And love leans above the pallid face and whispers, We shall meet again. Hope is the consolation of the world. Let us hope, if there be a God, that he is wise and good. Let us hope that if there be another life, it will bring peace and joy to all the children of men. And let us hope that this poor earth on which we live may be a perfect world, a world without crime, without a tear. End of The Foundations of Faith by Robert G. Ingersoll